Welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. This is part two of our series on modern slavery legislation, focusing specifically on what Canada is doing to tackle this global problem. If you work in compliance, reporting, or otherwise manage supply chain logistics, then you've probably heard of Bill S-211, Canada's draft modern slavery law that has been on the docket now for several years. If passed, the bill will apply to any Canadian-linked entity that produces, sells, or distributes goods anywhere in the world or imports goods into Canada with certain threshold criteria. After stumbling on several parliamentary roadblocks the last few years, will 2022 be the year that Canada finally has its own Modern Slavery Act? What is this going to mean in practice for the entities that were just described? And where will it put Canada on the international spectrum of supply chain reporting requirements? Also, once this bill receives royal assent, how much further is Parliament going to go? We say this because in March, for example, a second bill was introduced that would require companies to actively prevent human rights abuses abroad. To talk us through these questions, we welcome back Alison Fitzgerald, partner in our Ottawa office who practices international arbitration and advises on economic sanctions, business ethics, and anti-corruption issues. Alison was a previous guest in our episode on international parent company liability, a topic which crosses over into today's discussion. Joining Allison is Megan Farrell, an associate in our corporate team who advises businesses on human rights and ESG compliance matters. Allison, Megan, welcome to the podcast. So let's jump right in. Uh, first, how close is Canada to having its own modern slavery act? I would say we're very close. Um, Bill S-211, as it's now named, I think will pass by the end of this year. Uh, It's already passed uh, through every stage of reading in the Senate. It's passed through uh, two levels of reading in the House, and it's now in committee with the Foreign Affairs Committee. I anticipate that it'll move fairly quickly through the committee report stage and uh, be back into third reading, I would expect, in the fall. The main question is whether it'll receive royal assent uh, by the end of this year or um, whether it might receive royal assent next year. And there's a fairly significant impact to that because uh, it'll determine whether or not the reporting obligation is in effect already as of May next year or whether they'll roll it forward by a year. Is it, is it fair to say that that sounds like it is a foregone conclusion that legislation in some form is going to get passed it's just a question of how soon how imminent I think so yes I mean this there's this legislation um, has taken uh, several different forms and bills that have been introduced uh, during past sessions during the past several years and for various reasons those bills have died on order papers but Um, This one is moving forward. It has broad support across all parties um, in in Parliament. The only real question that's been raised in debate, certainly in the House, is whether or not it goes far enough uh, in terms of the obligations that are imposed. Uh, So on that point, then, what, what is it going to look like? The main purpose is to promote transparency in the supply chain. So businesses that meet certain criteria are going to have to put out a report that assesses the risk of modern slaving their supply chain, as well as what they're doing to mitigate and reduce that risk. 
So it's going to apply to businesses that either A, are listed on a public stock exchange in Canada, or B, have a place of business in Canada, do business in Canada, or have assets in Canada. It's not intended to apply to small businesses, so you're only going to have to report under category B if you also meet two out of three of either having $20 million in assets, $40 million in revenue, or and or 250 employees uh, in your past two financial years. There's one further category as well that I would flag. Um, uh, uh, an entity that doesn't otherwise fit within that description could be prescribed by regulation. So if the government has some concern that it hasn't caught that the corporate population that it's looking to catch and is concerned um, about from a reporting perspective, then you could see uh, the Minister of Public Safety actually designate um, certain categories of, of entities by regulation. Where then does it sit on the international spectrum? Let's say we have uh, the UK Modern Slavery Act at one end and uh, maybe France's duty of vigilance at the other. Where will the Canadian law sit in that spectrum? I would put us somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, but it depends on what piece of the bill you're looking at as well. Some of them go further in terms of what they are prescribing as a requirement. The duty of vigilance law in, in France is, it goes further in terms of a, a duty of due diligence. Um, this bill is framed as a, a reporting bill or a bill containing a reporting obligation. But if you look at what companies are required to report on, they're required to report on matters that in themselves would require, for example, a risk assessment to have been undertaken um, and some measure of due diligence undertaken or the report will be, um, we've taken no steps <laughs> of, a, of a, a matter uh, that would investigate these risks within our supply chain. And I can't see any Canadian company wanting to be uh, the company that is publishing that on its website. So the reporting obligation itself might actually go some distance to encourage companies to actually take steps in the nature of um, investigating what risks are present within their supply chains and to start managing them in a way shy of uh, an obligation in the, in the sense of what exists within the duty of vigilance. But I think it could push the direction in a more proactive um, sense in Canada. And I just want to dig a bit deeper on this difference that you have between the two styles of modern slavery laws. Um, because I just want to pause and basically ask about Bill 262 and tell me if I'm completely off track with it. But there was at the end of March a bill that had its first reading in uh, the Canadian Senate the title of the bill, I think, was the Corporate Responsibility to Protect Human Rights. And that created various mandatory due diligence requirements. Um, so I, I kind of want to ask a little bit about your thoughts on that piece of draft legislation and how it will affect what's going on with S211. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, and I don't know what the fate of this particular bill will be, whether... Um, the tabling of this bill um, will drive some of the discussions in respect of Bill S-211 and perhaps encourage uh, uh, some broadening of the scope of S-211. Um, the scope of um, what's been tabled as a private member's bill 
does take a broader look at human rights as opposed to a narrower focus on forced labor and child labor. One of the things that surprised me a little bit about what is not in Bill S211 is that it doesn't discuss human trafficking, for mm -hmm. example. And yet that's clearly uh, something that's a part of the Minister of Labor's mandate uh, in this government. And there's an investigation that's underway, as I understand it, um, under the Ministry of Labor into risks with respect to forced labor, child labor, and human trafficking in uh, Canadian government procurement. So whether or not some of the human rights flavor uh, to this further bill would influence the content of Bill S211, or whether it will be a mechanism that continues to push a more aggressive approach in legislating some of these concerns in Canada, I think it remains to be seen. I can't see both of these bills moving forward in the sense that it would potentially create an incoherent regime as opposed to a robust single regime that can be administered in a sensible and transparent way. So if we can look at maybe some of the specifics of Bill 211, maybe let's start with its teeth. What are the mechanisms in the bill to ensure compliance? There are um, fairly large fines, so fines of up to $250,000, and there is also an element of director, officer, and agent liability. Um, I think kind of something important to clarify there is that um, it, it, those types of fines are imposed where a company doesn't issue a report, where the report doesn't contain all of the required information, or if there's false or misleading statements made that it's not intended, um, like no one's going to be facing liability for not eliminating all risks of modern slavery in their supply chain in one go. It's really if you're not properly reporting that risk or if you're misrepresenting that risk. So it's as though the, the mechanism to ensure compliance with the overall goal of eradicating slavery from the supply chain is a combination of those penalties that people don't comply with the regime. And then the regime itself is meant to sort of daylight bad practices to ensure that the market kind of solves for people you see that too in the Senate debates or the Senate speeches and the House of Commons speeches so far, the real teeth is supposed to be in the naming and shaming element. So the idea that Canadian consumers would make different decisions if they had this information readily available to them. I think what we might see here on that point is something similar to what has happened, as I understand it, in France where you've got civil society organizations stepping in to fill a void in the duty of vigilance to identify um, companies based on, for example, searches conducted of their websites to determine what is being reported, what's not being reported. So civil society organizations are kind of creating that you know, shaming list, if you will, or at the very least a tracking list to determine how seriously uh, regulated entities are taking the obligations. I could see something similar happening here in Canada where an NGO may step in and, and start looking at what entities are likely to be caught by the legislation and then start looking at what they're reporting, how they're reporting, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And if naming and shaming is, is um, the primary uh, thread, what potential civil liability risk does that create? 
Well, I think companies have to be very careful about what it is that they're going to say in these reports and have to be in a position to back it up. Uh, I think they're at risk of um, misrepresenting what they're doing to the public. You can imagine with a publicly traded company, if investors are investing in the company on the basis of the statements made in their report, as an increasing number of investors are doing, they're investing in accordance with ESG priorities, they're investing specifically in companies that uh, are holding themselves out as uh, not engaging in certain practices, including uh, using forced labor or slave labor, or um, they're looking at the entire profile of a company and their ethical conduct um, in, in a broad way and, and investing accordingly. Uh, so I could, I could see you know, shareholder suits if it subsequently comes to light that a company's reporting on uh, its risk assessments, a company's reporting on the diligence conducted um, uh, turn out to be false. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is looking at supply chain in a way that companies may not necessarily have considered their supply chain in past, at least not to this level of detail. And so what I can see officers and directors inquiring into within their companies is whether or not they're organized in a way to be able to reliably pull the, the sort of information that they're going to need to um, uh, pull and, and prepare and reduce into the form of a report that can be published in which they can have confidence and, and stand by. And so I think there'll be a bit of a a reverse engineering process to figure out what are the first steps we need to take to put ourselves in a position in which we can sign off on these reports um, and have them published in, in the public domain. I can also see officers and directors turning to their insurers to see, will we have a product that will cover us in the event that something goes wrong? In the event there is a, a gap in their you know, compliance structure or internal controls. Um, I, I can see them very much being concerned about that and, and rightly so. And, and it's an interesting exercise. I mean, Meg, I think you said it really well, that this is sort of about naming and shaming and, and especially when we're talking about public companies, by making this a disclosure obligation, you're arming the rebels with the information that they need to replace leaders of companies who don't take these obligations seriously. So when it comes to, you know, mounting an activist campaign to oust a board that doesn't care about what's happening in the supply chain, I mean, it, this is all directed around the idea that out of sight, out of mind doesn't work anymore for what you're doing abroad and you need to take a genuine interest in what's happening, lest you be taken to task for it by the people who invest in your company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One thing that I can see also happening um, in, in reaction to this is that what's not always transparent um, when questions are raised with respect to the potential presence of forced labor or child labor um, or some kind of um, risk of human rights violation in someone's supply chain is that large companies in particular will tell you, well, it's one thing to get to our tier one suppliers and to ask the questions that we need to ask to understand whether or not at that level uh, there is a problem in our supply chain. It's another thing to get to tier two suppliers 
to drill down to that level. And even companies that can get to that level, getting down to the level, for example, of a tier three supplier, you know, do you have a problem at the level of someone, you know, picking cotton in a field? You know, are, are your workers uh, properly engaged? Do you have a risk of miners working in conditions that they shouldn't be working in? It can be very challenging. And there aren't a lot of tools right now available to companies across all industry sectors to be able to engage in this kind of robust scrutiny across their entire supply chain. I just raise that because I think it's there is a complexity to this that isn't always appreciated. It's very easy to say no one wants uh, children, you know, working in horrendous conditions as a part of their supply chain, and no one wants um, someone to be forced, uh, you know, to be working on a, a garment that's then going to show up at a retail store in Canada. It's another thing to be able to drill down in order to satisfy yourself at every level in your supply chain that the risk is not there, or if it is there, it's being managed properly. And even if you can ask the question, if you can get to the tier three suppliers, there's no guarantee of a truthful answer. And like, to what extent is the onus on you to verify the accuracy of the information that you've got? And a really interesting um, comment that Stuart made in our part one recording was um, given the difficulty for multinational corporations in drilling down to their tier three suppliers that are often in developing economies that perhaps don't have the same level of protect worker protections as, as developed economies do, the risk is so great that they might just end up transferring all their supply chain activities to, to Canada or to other developed countries. It's interesting. Um, another interesting element of the bill that I want to ask you about search and seizure powers that it provides for. Um, can you explain what those are and uh, what the significance of them is? I mean, it, it, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question and the extent of the search and seizure powers in the bill in light of the modesty, you could say, of the obligation um, is is a little bit odd. You know, what is it that would bring um, the minister to designate persons, perhaps the RCMP, uh, to carry out uh, a search and seizure of someone's home? In that the powers extend to uh, a dwelling place. So this isn't just a dawn raid of uh, a business's head office to look at. Um, whether or not um, they have a draft in place of the report that was due by May 31st in that financial year, but there are uh, extensive powers, um, search powers as well as seizure powers, including the ability to enter someone's home uh, to take photographs or make recordings or sketches of anything in place. I'm, I'm not entirely sure why the breadth of those powers has been granted in light of the nature of the obligation, uh, unless this is set up in a forward-looking manner to accommodate uh, the addition of further obligations that might be stronger, that might bring us further in the direction of uh, the French legislation or, or Dutch legislation. Yeah, I think it, it is a really interesting mismatch. You know, if, as you say, if, the, if this is about you know, primarily reporting obligations that, relatively speaking, are quite modest. Why 
the extent of these search and seizure powers. Do you think it's possible that any use of these powers would lead to any charter type claims or constitutional actions? Oh, I, I think absolutely you could, in part because of the, the sort of mismatch or apparent mismatch in any event between the scope of the powers and the nature of the obligation. You'd have to wonder on what basis that the RCMP, for example, would be seeking an ex parte warrant to search someone's house in connection with an alleged failure to satisfy a reporting obligation. And I think this potentially takes on further significance in the context of where we are post pandemic with so many people continuing to work from home um, that many, uh, many individuals may be subject to agile work uh, arrangements. They would have documentation potentially in their homes. Uh, they'd be working from um, an entity issued laptop, for example. Um, you, you could, in theory, if there were a basis on which it would make sense to search someone's home for um, evidence of failure to report on what the entity has done. I gather as well that in the process of being amended over time, the, the bill we're talking about has been uh, amended to include expanded reporting requirements for government institutions. Um, can you give us a sense of why those amendments would have been made and why Canadian businesses should be mindful of them? Um, well, it seems there have been, there are kind of two primary reasons why government institutions were included this time. So primarily um, because there's the idea that the federal government has a duty to be consistent. So if you're going to apply the set of standards to the private sector, it's not unreasonable to expect that the federal government is going to take um, the same steps. Um, and then as well as we saw with orders of medical supplies during the pandemic, the federal government also runs the risk themselves of importing goods made with forced labor. It's interesting because it, the UK, Stuart was saying in our previous episode that the UK had um, has made a similar expansion to uh, the National Health Service now. And it's the same, it's the same reasons as Canada, you know, sourcing uh, medical supplies and not, and not knowing um, what is in the supply chain for sourcing those products. Is there any significance of these additional government reporting requirements for the private sector? And I'm thinking specifically of public-private um, combined ventures. I, I think there could be, certainly. I mean, there could be um, reporting by government institutions that implicate Canadian businesses in a way that could shed light on the practices of a Canadian business um, to the extent they are a part of a risk that, that's been flagged, then that could train scrutiny on that Canadian business. Um, you know, it's entirely possible that that Canadian business would not be caught by the definition of entity uh, in the act or in the bill as it currently is. Um, but then query what that, <laughs> what that organization would need to do if it was flagged as a risk um, to government procurement uh, of goods. Um, uh, again, it would present potential, I would think, liability risks to uh, the company, again, even if they're not defined as an entity here, but going back to the earlier discussion of 
um, what public companies are facing in terms of the appetite of investors and what they're looking for in the companies they're investing in. And then also, I think for government procurement contracts, even though the, the bill at the moment doesn't apply to small businesses, as, as Megan noted, if you're the government that you're tendering for some work, you're not going to look at those small businesses <laughs> if they don't have the appropriate procedures in place for the government body to comply with its requirements under the Act. Well, I think what you'll see is in government contracting, there will be, there will be requirements passed through in all of their contracts. Right? They're going to attempt to manage their risk, I would think, through the contracting chain. Mm -hmm. So, Allison, when you were last on this podcast, uh, we talked about parent companies being liable for conduct by their foreign subsidiaries, particularly when it comes to human rights abuses as part of their supply chain operations. So what effect, if any, do you think modern slavery legislation will have on parent company liability risks? And might we see statutory causes of action or other kinds of liability for parent companies develop under modern slavery laws? Uh, I would say yes to that last question. And in part, you can already see the, the model of what that might look like in this new private members bill 262, because it actually contains a proposed cause that would set up a private right of action with respect to the obligations in the bill. So that's certainly something that is being debated in parliament. I'm not sure how close we are yet to that. I, I, can't, I can't see that being uh, added to bill S211 uh, before the end of this year, although I think it's something that could move forward um, eventually. Um, on, the, on the parent company liability side though, I think um, where the cross-section will be in the short term is that um, some of the, the cases over which Canadian courts have taken jurisdiction um, presenting claims by foreign plaintiffs have turned on um, policies uh, and representations that have been made by parent companies seated here in Canada in respect of their foreign operations. Right, and including in respect of companies in their supply chain. And those, um, those representations, uh, those assertions on behalf of the Canadian company uh, of their policies and the requirement to um, abide by those policies, including in the foreign jurisdiction in terms of how uh, a mining project is being carried out or in terms of how an infrastructure project is uh, developing. Um, they've been the basis or part of the basis on which Canadian courts have um, seized jurisdiction over foreign plaintiff claims when, when things go wrong abroad. Uh, so I can see this reporting obligation in uh, Bill S211 um, potentially presenting some risk again to companies with respect to what risks they are identifying, whether those map um, to risks that are um, in a position to materialize in the real world. Uh, and then I can see foreign plaintiffs looking at the reports that these entities are um, publishing on an annual basis and seeing whether there's something in the report on the basis of which they can rely in order to bring a claim, a civil claim against the Canadian company here in Canada. So I, you know, it, it potentially becomes a little bit circular. And I think one of the things that we had talked about in the last 
podcast on parent company liability is that you know these these compliance policies adopted by Canadian companies in the nature of ESG they're they're tools that provide Canadian companies with a basis on which to communicate across their supply chain what the expectation is of ethical business conduct of respectable business conduct of business conduct um, that is consistent with how we expect to be treated here in Canada and would like uh, to convey to um, how an operation abroad is, is going to conduct itself within their supply chain. Um, but they, that they present risk. There's, it's a direct line back up to the Canadian company. And I don't think there's any way of avoiding that. And I don't think Canadian companies should shy away from it. But it comes back to one of the points we, we began with here is that officers and directors of Canadian entities that are going to be subject to this legislation do need to be careful and diligent in assessing the risk of forced labor in their supply chain and child labor in their supply chain and careful about um, how that risk is articulated and careful about how any uh, due diligence that's conducted is articulated in the reports. Uh, in a way to ensure that they're complying with the spirit uh, of the bill and they're moving forward with uh, their own um, uh, agenda to conduct themselves ethically um, without necessarily inviting foreign plaintiff claims. Mm. And I mean, not to still fixate on Bill 262 because I know it's not the one that we're expecting to come into law imminently, but. It is interesting to note in there that there's a five-year limitation period as well. So it's an amendment of the standard two-year limitation period to five-year for certain claims. And also it looks like the people who could bring a claim under that bill, it, it's an expansion of the of those that might have standing, right? That's what it looks to me. So you've got an in, increased uh, pool of potential claimants and an increased limitation period but this is the this is not the bill that is coming in force or that we expect to come into force imminently so it's at the moment just an academic point I guess well it's one of the reasons why this bill won't pass <laughs> it's too broad it goes too far and frankly it appears punitive in a way that I, I, I don't think um, parliament has any way of legislating at this stage I think there is an appetite to work with Canadian companies in order to bring everyone forward to a similar standard. And again, I think it's one of the reasons why the government has said they're going to walk the talk. They're going to ensure that government institutions also comply with the view of raising up the general standard of ethical business conduct um, in Canada and ensuring that Canadians are not inadvertently, um, uh, for example, uh, importing goods um, or engaged in the production of goods uh, using forced labor or child labor in a way that we would find unacceptable here within Canada. Mm -hmm. Are there any industries that you guys think are going to get hit harder than others by this kind of law? Well, there are already some that are, um, I think, more exposed and already are more of a focus of inquiry, um, like the textile sector, right? And it's not because there's anything inherently uh, evil about the textile sector, but in terms of how clothing is made, supply chains are all over the world. Um, 
right down to you know the cotton that's grown in a field, um, the spinning of the cotton that's picked, it's combing, it's processing, um, uh, the knitting of fabric, the assembly, that there are parts of supply chain that are um, moved all around uh, the world. And in order for garments to be made affordably, um, largely for purchase here in the Western market, and um, many of those steps in the supply chain are going to be seated in low-cost jurisdictions. The extractive industry as well, we do already have the extractive sectors uh, transparency act and probably also agriculture and seafood. And it's interesting talking about extractives. What I, I think about mining is being relative to uh, the tech sector, given how many mined components find their way into a cell phone or another electronic device. I mean, like you guys are talking about in second tier and third tier elements of the supply chain, it's not just uh, uh, an assembly factory putting the pieces together, but it's how those components come out of the ground and turn into the subcomponents that turn into chips, that turn into phones, that turn into, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is such a big cascading effect from channel industries like you're talking about. No, I think that's right. But I, you know, you could have, um, you, you could, you could, you could have a, a fairly easy answer to that question of, okay, well, who's, what industries are going to be most impacted? Um, what industries may have the greatest risk, right? So the criteria in the bill will sweep in any number of entities. Some of those industry sectors will likely present very little risk. And so the reporting obligation won't, won't present much burden, but there are certain industry sectors that are known to, again, in part of where they operate in the world and um, whether they're heavy um, reliers on manual labor as opposed to uh, some kind of mechanation, um, they're at a higher risk as a result of the industry that they're in. So if you're to take a look at um, the, uh, the jurisdiction of the, the Canadian Ombudsperson for Responsible Enterprise, the core that was set up uh, a few years ago now, um, the core was set up with an initial jurisdiction over a handful of industry sectors, namely the garment sector, mining, and oil and gas. I could see over time the core's jurisdiction, assuming the core project is successful and is seen to be successful, that will likely expand. But I think given that those industry sectors have already been identified for the core uh, to receive complaints as well as to investigate in terms of understanding um, risks of violations of human rights and supply chain in those industry sectors, you could probably see a crossover of that in terms of the industry sectors that are going to be most closely scrutinized um, with respect to their reporting under Bill S211. That's also why it's the absence of human trafficking in the bill is also interesting because that would be another area that would catch other to other uh, sectors. Other, for, and for example, Stuart was talking about um, the financial sector and the human trafficking element being particularly significant to banks who then have to monitor, well, are there lots of bank accounts being opened up on, in, on one day in this area? Are there small amounts going backwards and forwards that are indicative of humans being trafficked? And so I guess the absence of that wording in the Canadian Act is, is interesting and, and significant. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, it, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that um, human trafficking has not made its way into the bill. Um, 
maybe it will be at some point in the future. Um, but um, I mean, it's clearly a, a subject that the Canadian government is looking into and is alive to um, with respect to the risk it poses to supply chain. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners who are thinking about this legislation coming on in, online, what are your practical tips for, for them to get ready for it coming into force? Some businesses already have these in place or are working on putting them in place, but we're seeing more and more human rights or anti-modern slavery policies. Um, a lot of other companies are developing checklists to use with downstream suppliers. Um, and Allison already mentioned this actually in the context of government RFPs, but we have been seeing a few uh, companies coming to us looking for kind of template anti-modern slavery provisions to work into contracts with third downstream contractors or suppliers. So for instance, like representations that a supplier does not and will not engage in modern slavery practices, um, as well as like covenants, even that a supplier will provide um, the purchaser with all information they need to comply with their own modern slavery requirements and that they'll undertake to get that same information from their own downstream suppliers. Um, so probably gonna see more and more of that if, if this bill goes into force. Oh, um, how effective do you think having an indemnity provision in your contract with a supplier to the effect that if we've asked you about forced labor issues and you give us an inf information and we have made a statement based on that information, that turns out to create a liability for us, you're going to indemnify us for that liability. How effective do you think that kind of provision might be? I mean, I, I suppose I think it'd be as effective as any other indemnity you would have in a downstream contract, but I do think it would be helpful from the purpose of your own reporting requirements to say, okay, like this is something we've done to mitigate this risk in our supply chain. And I think that indemnity clauses are useful because they can address some of the financial risk of a company relying on a representation that turns out not to be um, true. They typically don't really address reputational risk, right? What's the reputational damage of uh, it turning out that you have um, a poison pill of sorts in your supply chain? Um, I think one of the one of the steps that Canadian companies need to take at least those that assess that the bill is likely to apply to them that they will have a reporting obligation that if they haven't conducted a risk um, a risk assessment uh, with respect to the risk of forced labor or child labor in their supply chains then that is the first step i think they should be taking that uh, you can only manage so much through contractual clauses. And, and I'm seeing a lot of language in various contracts as well, seeking representations or even attestations with respect to whether or not there's you know, child labor or forced labor um, used within um, a, a supplier's chain. Um, but I think you know, that's, that's a bit of a Band-Aid um, what really is required here is for companies to actually conduct their own risk assessment. And that requires active engagement. That requires um, a dedication of resources. This is going to cost companies, uh, particularly initially. And then I think there'll have to be a sort of cyclical refresh of the risk assessment anytime there is a material change in their supply chain. And I think you know once they set up um, a, a system that allows them to monitor 
material changes that might introduce a risk that has not previously been caught. And that might be through imposing a regular reporting obligation on um, the suppliers, at the very least, their, their tier one suppliers. Um, then it helps to share the burden a little bit as well on the entities that ultimately have to um, report here in Canada. For multinationals that already have this obligation in other jurisdictions, I think they're going to have an advantage because they've already had to figure it out. And even if you know the the obligations are a little different, um, they might they might consider they have a lesser obligation here in Canada if they had a positive due diligence obligation someplace else. But most of these pieces of legislation require either the guts or the reporting or both. Um, the reporting is a fairly easy piece if you've already undertaken the guts of the operation to carry out a robust risk assessment, to carry out proactive due diligence um, of what's happening within your supply chain. That's, that's something that Abby McGregor um, said in our previous episode about multinational corporations um, complying with various modern slavery regimes and basically the answer being, you know, pitch yourself at the highest and most demanding regime and you'll fall in line with all the others. It's taking the gold standard approach, which is what many companies do with respect to anti-bribery legislation. They'll identify what is the highest bar that we have to meet in all the jurisdictions in which we face some legal exposure. And that's, that's what we're going to adopt internally as the standard for conduct within our company. Awesome, Megan, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.